Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Wednesday, February 15, 2023. South Sudan's Minister of Defense says the just-concluded International Women's Conference in Juba has boosted the image of the country. We look at it as groundbreaking because now this is South Sudan in a different light. Women coming together, not discussing conflict, not discussing, not mediation, but women discussing how they can make a difference. And some government employees in South Sudan say they can hardly provide food for their families. A regimental sergeant major receives 6,000 South Sudanese pounds. Whenever I receive this money in a month, it is hard to buy a small bag of maize flour. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Government employees in South Sudan say they continue to struggle... Sorry for that mix-up. Government employees in South Sudan say they continue to struggle amid soaring cost of living in the country. The government increased the salaries of civil servants by 100% last year. But some civil servants say they can barely feed their families. For VOA News, Manyang David Mayar has more from Juba. A group of women vendors in Juba's Konikonyo market are offering first aid to a 27-year-old police officer, Moses Shandok, who suddenly collapsed in the market. Shandok's wife, Abuk, props him up to a sitting position and supports his back with her legs as her husband shivers. Well-wishers contributed money to pay for a rickshaw to rush Shandok to Juba Teaching Hospital. Speaking to South Sudan in focus, Shandok says his condition was more about hunger than a disease. When the sun hits my face, my eyes become black and I see everything around me spinning. So I set off on foot with my wife to see the doctor to know if this is malaria or what. We don't have enough to eat. My wife only cooks when there is something. Shandok says the salary he gets paid is not enough to cover the basic needs of his family of four. A regimental sergeant major receives 6,000 South Sudanese pounds. Whenever I receive this money in a month, it is hard to buy a small bag of maize flour, which is 6,500 South Sudanese pounds. So the only way is to get some cups of flour and use remaining to buy water. When I am in good health, I always find some place to do manual work. Shandok says his family sometimes goes for days without food because his salary as a police officer is so low. Major General Daniel Justin, a spokesperson for the South Sudan National Police Service, says all members of the Gunai's forces face similar hardships. That policeman is not him alone. All over. It's the same situation, but the others I know, I don't know how they are managing it. People are using other, looking for other sources of supplementing what they are getting from the government. 
In his Independence Day anniversary speech last July, President Salva Kiir Mayardit ordered a 100% increase in all salary structures for civil servants and members of the country's organized forces to help government employees cope with rising prices of commodities. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay says the salary increase is being carried out in phases. If you want to hear about the 100% it was implemented for a certain category for the lower classes. The middle class and the higher class were not affected. Now the new salary structure is in the process. Bennett Ladu, a teacher of Gumbo Basic Primary School in Juba, says he has seen the new salary structure reflected in his salary twice, but says it is not enough to cope with the rising food prices. Because in the former years I was having 3,500. So when it was multiplied, it becomes 7,000, 7,000 net. When you see that is 100%. So after a few months, it was in November, my money increased to 23,000. I did not go equivalent to the market. 23, you cannot do anything to my service. Only self examine the country because of my patriotism of helping my, community, my country. Lado says he grows vegetables that his wife sells in the market to pay for his school fees and other expenses. He says the low salaries for civil servants and the high cost of living in Juba has led to the breakup of some marriages in Juba. Sadia Poni, who works for the Education Ministry, says civil servants are starving. Most of us have died. Our children are unable to go to school. We are unable to support them to the higher level of education due to low payment of salary in the government. Despite that, we are even unable to construct a good house that we are sleeping in. We are sleeping in Tuklus, Rokubas. Pony says one of her colleagues recently died from excessive drinking after he was unable to care for his family. She says she too performs some manual work to supplement her meager government salary. For VOA News, I'm a young David Mayer in Juba. An international women's conference on transformational leadership in South Sudan wrapped up today. Many participants described the, the event as timely after Pope Francis visited the country. South Sudan's defense minister says the conference has boosted the image of the country. Juliana Shiapai attended the closing ceremony and filed this report for viewing from Juba. During his recent visit to Juba, Pope Francis noted the struggle of South Sudanese people, especially women, and called on all citizens to respect women and humanitarian workers. Minister of Defense and Veteran Affairs, Angelina Tenyi, says hosting the International Women Conference on Transformational Leadership indicates the country is becoming stable despite delays in the implementation of peace agreement. We look at it as groundbreaking because now this is South Sudan in a different light. Women coming together, not discussing conflict, not discussing, not mediation, but women discussing how they can make a difference, how they can learn from experiences of others, how they can be part of moving this country forward, how they can be part of the nation building. Jane Kiden, the director of gender at the National Ministry for Gender, Child and Social Welfare, says South Sudanese have learned a lot from participants such as former president of Liberia and Mauritius who attended the event. We had almost 15 countries 
from uh, from the region that have attended to share with us their experiences. There are those who have been with us uh, in the similar situation where South Sudan have been in conflict, like Liberia, and they have also shared with us their experiences, how women are able to be positioned or how women can resolve conflict in different uh, uh, levels. Rita Lopedia, executive director of EVE organization, an organization for women development, says she was excited to see important dignitaries coming to join the women of South Sudan to share their experiences. This conference gives the opportunity to re-energize women. So we are re-energizing ourselves to be prepared for the constitution-making process, which might, uh, the process might kick up soon. And uh, after the constitution-making process, there might be election. So it is important that women strategically position themselves uh, because the constitution is a national document and it needs to be inclusive and reflect the aspiration of women in South Sudan. The conference covered topics like political participation, the effect of climate change and the role of women in the liberation movement. For VON News, I am Juliana Shiapai in Juba. The Jongle State Information Minister says frequent attacks on humanitarian workers and their assets over the past week has hampered development and operations of aid agencies in his state. Jongle State authorities are calling on the national government to beef up security in the area so that road construction projects and humanitarian operations are not disrupted by what they call criminal elements and saboteurs. For view. Um, criminal believed to be from Moreland uh, attack uh, ARC workers. This is a company that's constructing the road. Uh, they have completed the first phase from Juba to Bor, and now they are on the second phase that was commissioned recently by the president. Bor, uh, Ayod, Malakal, Rang Highway. There also another feeder road from Guardian to Akobo that will also transit up to Ethiopia. There's another feeder road from Guardian to UI. The company came under attack by armed criminals from Morale. Uh, they banned two bulldozers, which are new brown ones, and uh, there were no casualties that were reported. So through the help of uh, SSPD forces that are in Guardian, uh, the reinforcement went and uh, uh, pursued these attackers toward Greater Tibor. Uh, that was one incident. The other incident happened yesterday, Monday, where humanitarian convoy that was returning back uh, from the areas of UI Aurora County came under attack also uh, by these criminals. So they, uh, they attacked the vehicles, the vehicle stopped, and uh, good enough, these were foreigners. Uh, they confiscated their items. Uh, they did not kill anyone. They took the phones, they took some money and uh, the clothes. You call them criminals and you say they're from the Morley community, but what do we know about the identity of these attackers? Because in an earlier statement you said they were instigated or put to this by certain criminal elements, anti-peace elements in the area. So what is their agenda exactly? The agenda are in two. One is to uh, destabilize uh, the ongoing development, which is a national project. 
we believe they don't act on their own because if they are to reach an extent of burning down the equipment, you know how uh, expensive those equipment are, and you know if you are to burn, then immediately you are stopping uh, the work. That means it's a gesture that you don't want this work to continue. Yes, you say they're not acting on their own. Someone put them to this, right? Someone is uh, is uh, sending them. Someone put them into this. Yeah, someone someone is, is sponsoring them. Someone is telling them to go and do that. Someone in Juba or in the area? These are political elements that we don't want to see any progress being made in Jongle, whether peace or development. We believe we cannot tell where they are. But uh, they have some indications because the move they are making uh, clearly indicates that uh, they don't act on their own because they are very strategic enough the way they attack. Mm. You say when they attack and they were repulsed by SSPDF forces, they retreated to uh, the Greater Pibor Administrative Area. What is your government in Jungle yeah. State doing? Uh, to coordinate with authorities there to prevent these attacks, to make the environment safer for humanitarian workers? One is that we have learned, we, we, we are engaging with the authorities of Greater Pibore. The only challenge we have learned is that the Greater Pibore administrative area is not in control of their youth. Second to it is that this is beyond the capacity of the state government. We call on the national government to intervene because the road development is a natural, uh, is a national project, which is now at stake. It is, it is under threat from these criminals from greater people. We call them criminals because they acted on their own, and uh, with some other instigators that might we believe are not in the system of the government of greater people, neither in our government. But we want the support of the national government to help deploy uh, SSPDF along the road so that there is. A free passage, there is a way this company can continue that, uh, with the road construction and development is realized in Jongle, and that will bring peace. That's John Samuel Mignon, Jongle State Minister of Information. He was speaking to my colleague Nabil Biagio from Bor area today. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, what is the status of the Juba Comprehensive Peace Agreement? Find out more after the break. South Sudan in Focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. South Sudanese officials who mediated peace talks that led to the signing of the October 2020 Juba Peace Agreement say they are concerned over delays in implementing the deal. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. 
Representatives of parties which signed the Juba Peace Agreement who are taking part in a Juba workshop are looking at ways to remove any obstacles to its implementation. Speaking to reporters in Juba last night, the Umatok, secretary of the mediation team, said based on a report presented by the signatories, only a small portion of what was agreed on has been implemented so far. In audio provided to this program by the Sudan News Agency or SUNA, view expressed concern over unimplemented provisions of the agreement, including the governance protocols. Only very little has been implemented from this protocol, and this is a very important part of the agreement. The protocol was very clear on the appointment procedures of the constitutional post holders, such as appointing members of the Sovereign Council, ministers, and procedures of appointing regional and state governors. Juba has been mediating the talks between nine armed groups under an umbrella organization known as the Sudanese Revolutionary Front and the Sudanese Transitional Government. Those talks led to the signing of the Juba Peace Agreement in October 2020. The agreement was divided into five tracks, Darfur, Central, Eastern and Northern Sudan, as well as the Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile. The U says the Darfur track has faced numerous challenges. The mediation team explored the Darfur track which has been divided into eight protocols. Our observation is that six of the eight protocols have not been implemented completely. The eight protocols include the self-return of the internally displaced persons and refugees and disarmament. Adam Rijal, a spokesperson of the General Coordination of the IDPs and Refugees in Darfur, says the agreement has not changed anything for conditions of citizens in Darfur. Speaking to South Sudan in focus from Zalinje town of central Darfur state, Rijal blames the signatories for not following through on what they have agreed on. Their first interest was to access power and wealth. They didn't think about stopping the ongoing killing, burning of property and ethnic displacement of the people in Darfur. None of the signatories to this agreement have ever been to the IDP camps to see the situation of the people and to give them protection from ongoing attacks. Intercommunal clashes have been rampant in Darfur, Blue Nile and Eastern Sudan and occurred within days of the signing of the agreement. In December 2021, South Sudanese chief negotiator Tut Gathluak announced the suspension of the Eastern Truck, a provision which addresses concerns of the people in Eastern Sudan. Gatluak said the Eastern Truck had not been implemented due to concerns raised by the Bija community in Eastern Sudan. Michael Atit for VOA News, Khartoum. The annual report of Munich Security Conference has found that global attitude towards Russia and China have shifted since the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine, including in Africa. The report says African countries' discontent with the West has not translated into a desire for Beijing or Moscow to wield greater influence over the international order. For VOA News, Mohammed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. A 176-page report released by the Munich Conference, an independent annual forum focused on international security, found that Africa is not interested in supporting a global order led by China and Russia. According to the report, African countries' attitudes towards Russia and China are changing as a result of Moscow's invasion of its neighbor Ukraine. 
Critics have accused African governments of failing to speak out against Russia's aggression and of refusing to economically and diplomatically isolate the nation. In a United Nations General Assembly vote in March 2022, 38 African countries condemned Russia's war on Ukraine, while 16 countries abstained. David Otto is head of security and defense analysis for the Center for Africa Security and Strategic Studies. He says African countries' behavior in the international system confuses many people. There's a confusion between general interest and support. You know, African countries are more now focusing on their own interests rather than supporting, you know, China or Russia, you know, geopolitical strategy. Every country has to, you know, focus on its own interests. You know, so I think, you know, what the, the, the difference here is that African countries are becoming more and more independent in terms of the choices that they make. While China and Russia may have garnered some support for their desired dominance, in the global security and economic fields. Most countries do not want a world led by autocrats, according to the researchers. The authors say Africa is dissatisfied with the global system led by Western countries and is also opposed to Russia and China gaining greater influence in the international system. Paul Nantulia is a specialist in China-Africa relations. He says China and the continent are collaborating to change some of the international institutions they feel are unfavorable to their survival. The Chinese government has been able to to leverage African grievances with the current international system in order to build sort of affinity. You know, they've been able to build diplomatic and political affinities with African countries. I think that what China wants to do is China wants to selectively shape the current international system. China does not necessarily want to overthrow the international order. China wants to selectively shape different in different parts of the international system. And in that endeavor, China has found the support of African countries. Experts say China has created institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and Global Security Initiative, which Africa is part of, to push for its influence and representation in the international systems. David Munyai is the head of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He says Africa prefers a world order that is fair to all continents and countries. We want order in which it's an order in which resources are distributed fairly within multilateral structures. In WTO, we fairness in terms of trade. You cannot have the countries that are talking about the anti-government must not subsidize, but they're subsidizing their own agricultural products. So there's still this. So whether Africa gets that, it might not have the power to get what it wants. However, it will continue to raise these issues. The report said Africa wants its voices hard and to be given a role to play in shaping international laws and rules. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. From Nairobi, we move back to the United States, where America is marking this year's Black History Month under the team Black Resistance. Here is what Shervon Allen Bradley, the president and CEO of the D.C.-based National Council of Negro Women, has to say about this year's Black History Month. 
NCNW wants to wish you a happy Black History Month. We are here thinking about this theme of Black resistance. And resistance is the juice that we have that allows us to fight these issues that we've faced for centuries. Black Americans in this country have known oppression. We have known issues like slavery, Jim Crow, but yet and still have been able to resist oppression and seek victory in all of the things that we do. So yes, we're fighting for voting rights. Yes, we're fighting for environmental justice and climate change. Yes, we're fighting for women's rights in this country. Black resistance means black power and black power means black people thrive in this country. Happy Black History Month. That was Chevron Allen Bradley, president and CEO of the National Council of Negro Women. She was speaking with VOA's Jackson Vongani here in Washington. One of America's heroes of the 19th century is Harriet Tubman, born in 19, born in 1822 in Dorchester County, Maryland. Tubman helped scores of enslaved black Americans resist bondage and gain their freedom. Today, Harriet Tubman Underground Railway Road Visit Center, Visitor Center is open to the public just a mile or so from where Tubman grew up on Maryland's eastern shore. Dana Petra, park manager of the Visitor Center, explains to VOS Carol Van Damme Tubman's formative years were spent in Dorchester County. She worked in the timber industry with her father. She trapped muskrats in the marshes. She was illiterate in the traditional sense, although the time that she spent in nature allowed her to hone skills that made her successful in her rescue mission. She was able to navigate the landscape by reading the stars and reading the signs of nature, and that helped her uh, to guide her rescue missions successfully up and down the eastern shore 13 times. She was a very courageous person, man or woman, just hands down. Um, she's also she's known as the Moses of her people. Can you explain that? She was given that name by abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison uh, because of her ability to successfully lead her people to freedom, just as Moses was able to lead the Israelites to the promised land. Tell us a little more about what the what visitors will find when they enter the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center. Well, our focus here at the park is on Tubman's early years in the Choptank River region of Maryland. She was born Araminta Ross in 1822. And she spent her formative years in Madison, Church Creek area, Wolford, and Bucktown. And it was here that she learned outdoor survival, checking muskrats on the Little Blackwater River. And there were communities of both free and enslaved African Americans living in the shipbuilding towns of Madison, Wolford, and Church Creek, where the timber was being taken to be processed and shipped out. And it was here in these towns that Tubman interacted with blackjacks or free African-American sailors who taught her how to navigate by the stars. People may not know that she escaped pretty much on her own. And then she went back several times, which was very dangerous, right? Uh, Yes, absolutely. On September 17th of 1849, she made the decision to self-liberate. And once she reached Philadelphia in William Still's office, she realized that even though she was free, 
her friends, her family, her community were still enslaved. And so she made the gut-wrenching decision to risk her life to come back to Maryland's eastern shore, not once or twice, but at least 13 times to rescue at least 70 uh, friends and family members. That's the Napatra Park Manager at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Center in Dorchester County, Maryland. She was speaking to my colleague Carol Van Dam from Church Creek, Maryland. And that's all we prepared for you this Wednesday. We now leave you with Emerson Tutu and the song Emerson and the song Tutu Party. <laughs> We have been listening to Emerson and the song Tutu Party. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. Don't forget to visit voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you missed this program, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. Thanks for taking your time to be with us. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Everybody.